Hey there, welcome to the Classical Liberal Project. My name is Danielle. Um, I'm here with Jar. Wow, I practiced everyone's name ahead of time. And uh, it's Lars Mapstead and Joshua Eckel. You got it. Oh, right. wonderful. <laughs> I've been away from the show for a while, so now you, you're good. <laughs> well, I started out saying jars, so I was like, I. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> well, thanks for the intro. And thanks for joining us, Lars. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's awesome. Um, Danielle, I, I'm okay with jumping straight into the questions. If you are, I mean, I'm, Do it. I'm just to set up for the audience, Lars, you're running for president on the libertarian ticket. I don't know if you want to kick off and do the whole elevator pitch to kind of tell people about what you're about first before we start jumping into our questions, but I'll give you the floor for that. Sure. I'll, I'll give it a quick little pitch on who I am and what I'm all about. I grew up really poor. I grew up in uh, Big Sur Coast in California with an outhouse and no electricity, uh, goats, hippie parents, uh, group, you know, pot farming, you know, in the area kind of a thing. And I, you know, ran around like a crazy wild kid for a number of years and didn't really have a lot of like supervision. And then eventually I ended up finding the Internet and finding computers. And I and I discovered that I had a knack for marketing and I started a whole bunch of internet businesses early on in 1994 when people really didn't know what the internet was. And I became a serial entrepreneur, just starting a lot of marketing businesses, things that I figured out that eyeballs equals money. And so I did a lot of marketing and just tried to figure out how to get the most eyeballs to the most advertising, you know, kind of things. And then eventually I, you know, built a bunch of companies and merged those together. And I eventually ended up becoming a partner in Friend Finder Networks, which is a big dating websites. And we grew that company to 600 employees doing $350 million a year in revenue. And then in 2007, we sold that company. And I thought I was going to retire for a little while, but I'm a, I, I like to just do stuff. I like to keep busy. And uh, I'm a car guy. So I, I race cars and I collect cars. And so I so I decided I'd start some Facebook pages around my car hobby and I was posting cars and all that kind of stuff. And that actually turned into a 10 year business, which amassed 25 million fans on Facebook. And I was supposed to just be like for fun, but it turned into this like big project until Facebook kind of uh, changed their rules in 2017 and kind of killed the business. And then I, I was watching, uh, you know, the election process in 2020 with Spike and Joe and I've been a voting libertarian for a long time. And I was looking at what they were doing. I was like, you know, I, I think I could do this and I think I can do, you know, a different job than they did. Right. And, and I could use my marketing skills to really like push the message of libertarianism out there in a way that's not being done right now. And, and I said, I have the skills to do all the things that are done. And I was listening to Larry Sharp, uh, and I had been listening to him for a long time and he was discussing his plans of like what he'd like to see if there was a libertarian candidate and what they would do for president the next time. Right. In order to be successful. And so I basically just grabbed Larry's plan and I've been running with it ever since. Right. And so uh, here I am, uh, you know, three years later running for president of the United States. And it's a uh, it's a wild ride for sure. No joke. Uh, yeah, that is pretty intense. So um what was the origin story then for you with finding libertarian values? Um, did you, was your introduction to the party that I understand in 2020 or was it goes beyond that? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Sure. What's your libertarian origin story? Yeah. Yeah. My libertarian origin story. So essentially 
when I started voting early on in my 20s, I would just listen to the people on TV that were running for president. And I would try to figure out what guy or gal resonated the best with me, right? Like did who, who fits my you know style the best. And I, I was in that time, I was really interested in business and business news was primarily what I watched a lot of. And so a lot of my ideas came out of business news and there came a, along came this guy, uh, Ross Perot. And Ross Perot had all these charts and he was talking about getting rid of the debt and that we, you know, we couldn't sustain this debt and that we were going to like, you know, crash and burn. And I just always have been like, because I grew myself out of nothing into something, I always had this feeling of being self-reliant, of, you know, taking care of our own, our own stuff and, and, and being responsible. Right. And so that resonated with me. And so I voted for Ross Perot. And then after that, there came along a guy named Ron Paul. And Ron Paul was talking about the same stuff. He was talking about, you know, getting rid of the debt and this sort of thing. I never really looked at party. It wasn't really a thing. And I, I voted for Ron Paul twi- two times. Uh, and then uh, in, in uh, whenever Gary Johnson ran the first time, whenever that was, 2012 or, or something like that, uh, I was the the internet was coming out and facebook was you know happening and everybody was passing around this quiz of like uh what's your political belief right so i took this quiz and i i was laughing when i took it because i was all my friends were posting they were republicans or democrats or whatever and i was like oh this will be funny when when i do this i wonder if it'll say i'm a republican or a democrat because i've never known what i am because not, i never fit into these these groups at all and I took the quiz and it says libertarian, like almost all the way at the top of the chart. And I'm like, what, what libertarian, even though Ron Paul was a libertarian, I didn't, it didn't click with me. Right. I voted for him, but not because he was a libertarian, but because he, his message was what I wanted to hear. Right. And so then I was like, Oh, okay. And then I was like, well, who's the libertarian guy running this time? Oh, it's this Gary Johnson guy. Well, let me look at what he's into. Wow, you know what? This a lot of this stuff this guy's talking about is the kind of stuff that resonates with me, at least a lot more than these other two people that are running, right? And so Gary Johnson ended up being the first time I ever donated to a political campaign. Uh I just what like I said, I wasn't a party person. And even though I I voted for him in the two times, and then I voted for uh Joe and Spike, uh I didn't really join the party because I I guess I didn't really realize there was a party to join. I didn't, I think, you know, I just thought you just voted. Like that's, you vote, you vote. And I was like, I'm a libertarian because I'm voting libertarian, right? I didn't realize there was like a whole nother layer of stuff that you can join up and become a dues paying member and and participate in the in the um, administration of the party, uh, you know, party stuff. So I guess that's really where I'm come from. And my views, I guess, have always just been sort of do your own thing, keep government out of your life. Uh, I've always resented every time, any, anytime government has inserted itself in my life, it just seems really gross most of the time. And so it, it just really clicks with me. You know, there's uh, it's just live and let live, you know, you know how to run your life better than other people. All that stuff is just totally ingrained in me. It's like, it's just how I live. So it's not, I didn't have to adopt it. It's just who I am basically. I have a very similar story myself. It was 2012, Gary, uh, Ron Paul's campaign, and then Gary. So same same thing for me. Very interesting. Danielle, I have some inside baseball questions about party stuff, but I didn't want to be real. If you have a question you want to kick us off with, 
<clears throat> no, um, but I just want to uh, reiterate that party business is super important. So if you are able to participate in party business, get involved in your county, state, even national. Um, get on yeah. there. There's like an email list you can get on if you really want to know everything that's going on too. Like, <laughs> yeah, and a shame. I was gonna say a shameless plug for the CLC. You join the CLC, and it makes it a lot easier. So there's. Oh yeah, I like that. <laughs> um, so Lars, uh, inside, I'll get my inside, uh, like kind of inside LP question out of the way first, and then I was gonna ask you some bigger picture stuff about kind of just general questions you're gonna hear on the campaign trail. But so you've been involved for in the party, it sounds like for about 10 years, or you've been aware of the party. Well, it says since 2020, at least. So you, yeah, I became a lifetime member in 2020 or 20, early 2021 or something like that. So, okay. Um, yeah. So at least since I've been involved in the party since 2012, uh, we've had 50 state ballot access pretty much every year. And it looks like in 2024, it'll be the first time in nearly a decade that we may not have 50 state ballot access. Um, it looks like the projections as it stands now, are anywhere between 44 and 48 states uh, in which we'll have placement on the ballot. So as you probably know, I'm sure you've heard this over and over again since you're running for president, one of the biggest things that libertarians hear as a as a um, an objection when they when they're doing door knocking or when they're talking to the public is I'm not can I'm not going to vote for you because you can't win, you know, there yeah. it's just not going to happen. So in an environment where we have less than 50 state ballot access that becomes a much stronger objection than it say it has in your years past. So my main question for you is, um, do you have any commentary for us on how you overcome that objection, how you talk about that objection with people? And what do you say if somebody comes to you with that, Hey, you can't win narrative. Um, how do you address that? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, obviously most of the time that, that these have been running, uh, Gary Johnson, you know, 5%, 4%, you know, uh, Joe and Spike, similar kind of couple percent here and there, you know. And so I think, you know, as a voter, I I, I kept voting and going, wow, these guys get 2% every time. So should I spend my vote somewhere else? But for me, it made perfect sense to continue to vote for these people, because if we don't show up and vote for what we believe in, then it can never happen. Right. And it's kind of like, I really realized that that the whole thing was a farce when I kept having to vote for Bush and Clinton, Bush and Clinton, Bush and Clinton, really. And like when when uh, Trump ran, I literally thought it was going to be Jeb Bush versus Hillary Clinton. And I was like, you know, for like more than half my life, uh, the only options that have been on the ballot to to actually, quote unquote, win has been Bush and Clinton. This isn't choice. This is an illusion of choice. Right. These people are already handpicked before we even start. Right. So it's an uphill battle. And. For me, what my campaign is all about is educating people of that problem, right? It's like now Democrats know the system is rigged. Republicans know this is, or they think the system is rigged and Republicans think the system is rigged and libertarians know the system is rigged, right? Because as soon as you start looking at ballot access, as soon as you start looking at gerrymandering, as soon as you start looking at the internal structure of how the whole system is put together, you realize that it's just completely shuts out any option, any third option, right? And so what I've decided that my campaign is really about is to educate as many American citizens about this problem, about this situation, and that we, how can we have a, a functioning republic if we don't have free and fair elections? If the, if the elections are completely fraud from the very beginning, 
then how can we, you know, how can we move forward, right? It, the system is completely broken. So my whole campaign is to come and try to fix the system, is to try to educate people how the system is broken. I talk to normal people all the time about ballot access, about how we're kept out of the debates, how they're, you know, all these different things that suppress libertarians. And a lot of times they just look at me like, you're crazy. Like that doesn't happen. They tell me it doesn't happen, right? And then I pull up like lawsuits in Texas where they try to get 25 libertarians off the ballot for, you know, some paperwork shenanigans or whatever, right? Or I tell people, hey, do you realize that like to get on the ballot for a libertarian is different than to get on the ballot for a Democrat or Republican. And they're like, no, it's not. You just you just get on there. And I'm like, no, look look at this stuff. And so it's it's amazing how few people really know about that. So I feel like it's our that's our like one of our number one priorities is to educate people because we're never going to move this party forward. We're never going to move anything and get rid of the duopoly unless people understand how entrenched they are and how much they use the system to suppress all other all other people. And my campaign is about fairness and common sense. And so it's it just makes sense that we would have an open system that works for everybody. If we want the best people to show up and run the country with the best ideas, then we have to let the best people come forward. And that's not the way that it is right now. The people that can come forward, the people that can win elections are people who are politically connected, are financially connected. Uh, the regular Joes can't show up and you know become president with the current system that we have right now. And so that's what my campaign is about is to try to level the playing field and let regular people come bring their ideas and hopefully make you know America better for everybody, not just for the elites and the entrenched rich people. Yeah, and just another anecdote from Tennessee. Talk there's a lot of states that are really bad. Tennessee is crazy. 39,000 signatures to run as a libertarian, 25 to run as a Republican or Democrat. <laughs> yeah. you me and, you know, in signatures nowadays, what I'm hearing is they're, you know, four to $5 a signature. So yeah. if you, if you need 40,000 signatures, that's $200,000 that you yeah. need just to get on the ballot. Right. And imagine Where, yeah, you're, you're starting a campaign and that's $200,000 less that you have for yeah. your campaign that the opposition has. Right. So, right. Absolutely. And the Libertarian Party on a good year gets $2 million, right? right. So if you have to spend $200,000 in 10 states, that's the entire budget for the entire Libertarian Party. And that's just for, you know, ballot access, right? Which I think, I mean, somebody asked me in a, in a recent podcast, what do you need the National Libertarian Party to do for you as a presidential candidate? And I said, ballot access is number one, right? Uh, helping with fundraising is critical, and then the third thing that I really need from national is consistent messaging across all states. So something so that everybody that is a candidate running during an election year would all be kind of broadcasting a similar message. Because if we're all talking different stuff, it the the message gets drowned out. The more voices that are yelling about one specific thing the more likely it is that it's going to get picked up by media and that it's going to be talked about, right? If, if, if we're all just single people yelling into the wind, it's not going to help. But if there's a thousand voices or 10,000 voices all yelling the same thing, ballot access is broken, the system is rigged, we've got to change it, then we have a movement. Then we have something that we can all get behind and really push, right? I, I love where you're going with this. How we're libertarians. You can't hurt cats, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, well, there, that isn't, that is an issue. And I, I think uh, we need to, I, I have initiated a thing called the Lars 24 challenge. And the Lars 24 challenge is that every registered libertarian voter 
if they go out and they get one new registered libertarian voter between now and the election, we can double the size of the party. Right. And it's really not a hard ask. Everybody has one friend that's like libertarian leaning and we can like go push on them and say, hey, this is the year that we really need you to register as a libertarian and vote libertarian. Right. And I think that that's a doable thing. And and that's the only way we're going to get there, because at we have 700,000 registered voters. That's nothing. It's not even a you know, it's a fraction of a percent of the people of, of America. If we want to win the presidency, we need 30 to 40 million people registered as libertarians and we need a plan to get there. And infighting is not going to get there. Right. Like that's that's I mean, it's it's like, uh, yeah, it's it's your point is is well taken. And, and we just need to, you know, pull up our bootstraps and look at the goal. And the goal is to get libertarians elected nationally, locally, you know, all over the place so that we can get some government out of our lives. Right. The only way we're going to dismantle the government and get it out of our lives is to put people in office. That's it. And. And so to that end, I think that's what the party's all about. The party is to run candidates and win elections. And so as a business person, I'm that's I'm really good at that. I'm really good at like figuring out a process and then like executing that process to get to where we need to go. And so, uh, you know, where I want to go is lots and lots of local elected people. And then hopefully we can get some nationally elected people as well and start, you know, turning this ship around that's just sinking. Right. <laughs> Got it. Danielle, do you have any other questions before I jump on my next one? <clears throat> no, go for it. Okay. I, I don't want to take too much here. All right. So um, let's talk about just big picture stuff again, campaign stuff. So obviously uh, I think libertarians are very passionate about, and I think the only party in the entire country right now that actually takes it seriously is the national debt. A national debt is completely out of control and both parties don't seem to have any plan to bring it under control. Um, how, how would you address the, the, the challenge of the national debt and, um, you know, how, how do you, how would you approach say balancing that or addressing that problem? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It's something I've been deep diving in because one I had put out there somewhere on social media, you know, that I want to reduce government and reduce the debt and, and reduce the spending. And somebody like basically challenged me. They're like, well, what exactly would you cut? And I didn't really have a good answer for it. I was like, oh, I mean, yes, I want to cut stuff, but I've never really thought about exactly what I would cut, right? So I had to go and dig up a chart of our spending. And I was looking at it and I was like, oh, crap. This, I, I just recently, if you go to my Twitter right now, they're like, a, within the last day, I posted a whole thing about this, essentially. And you start looking at it and we have $4.6 uh, trillion and then it's if you start cutting, you're like, wow, even if we got rid of the military 100%, right, we'd still be deficit spending. And then if you got rid of most of the rest of the government, besides the um, uh, mandatory spending, we'd still be deficit spending, right? And then I was looking at some charts today where the projections over the next 10 years is just, it's parabolic, right? The Medicare, uh, Medicaid, Social Security, we have a declining population base because the boomers are retiring, so they're no longer working. So we have less people working today in the labor force than we've had at any time in the last 40 years. And those people, essentially America is broke. We're living paycheck to paycheck off of payroll taxes on the people who are working right now. And because we have less people working right now, we have less income. And we have more people retired and they're using, they're taking more and more money and they're, and they're needing more and more healthcare, right? So the situation is totally dire. You won't hear politicians talk about this at all. 
And the reason they don't talk about it is because it's it, it will kill their campaign. Like they will not get reelected. If they say, look, we have to have a serious conversation about me Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, it's unsustainable, you're done. You're like, they're just, you're no, like, I was, I was reading something today and it said that, um, 70% of people in America are reliant on some form of social security or Medicaid or Medicare, uh, Medicare, right? I mean, it was like, because it's like, maybe they're not directly there, but one of their family members that they live with is that. And if they didn't have that, they would have to pay for that. Right. So if you talk about getting rid of any of those things, people are like, well, grandma's going to be out on the street if you do that. What are you going to, how are you going to fix that? Right. So it, we can't go in with a, uh, I'd love to go in with a cleaver and just like cut it all out and get rid of all this stuff. But the reality of it is it would be so devastating to people. We'd have like a great depression essentially, because we, we would just break the whole economy. So we, unfortunately we have to go incrementally in there and start cutting. Right. But anything that gets me to my North star goal, which is the least amount of taxes possible, I'm going to do. If I'm a president and Congress comes to me and says, hey, Lars, we've decided to cut taxes 5%. Well, you know, a lot of libertarians would be like, screw that. We're not taking that. We want 100% or nothing, right? And it's like, for me, I'm taking the 5% because it gets me closer to my goal of where I want to be. And maybe the next year I can get another 5% out of it. And by the time I'm done being president, maybe I've chopped off 25% of the, of the taxes and maybe I've cut 25 or 30% of the debt and hopefully get it somewhat under control, right? I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's really a challenge if you start really looking at it. And I, I challenged people on Twitter and no one really came at it with any good, any good answer on what they would actually do. Right. Yeah. I so, mean, and a lot of, a lot of the projections that you're referring to also are kind of moderate on the interest rate picture. I mean, if you're dealing with a situation where inflation gets out of control and interest rates have to go even higher then that becomes even more parabolic. But I yeah. think that there's a bigger picture question here, Lars, that I'd like to touch on, which is. Like this is a, always a libertarian challenge because libertarians hate debt and deficit spending, <laughs> but they also hate taxes, right? Yep. And so uh, you you find yourself in an environment where, let's say, you do get into a situation where you could cut taxes 10, 20, 30 uh, percent. You're not cutting spending; you're creating an environment where deficits are worse and the debt gets yep. higher. Yep. So, what? How would you prioritize? Like, what is more important to you in your mind? Is it cutting taxes and the burden on the on the individual, or is it reducing the deficit? I mean, that's a kind of a, maybe a challenging question, and there's nuance to it. But I'm curious as to whether you have anything yeah. here on that as well. So, what I've kind of come to the understanding of is that there's a third thing that we can do, and the third thing that we can do is we can grow the hell out of the economy. So that the percent that we're taking maybe the same percentage of taxation out or a less percentage of taxation out, but the amount of revenue that's coming in is greater because the the pie that they we're pulling out of is is bigger, right? So a lot of the policies that I'm pushing for are things that will like increase GDP dramatically, right? So like one of the big things I'm pushing for is the fair tax, which would get rid of the horrible IRS, abolish the IRS, get rid of the 16th Amendment, impl implement a very simple, straightforward consumption tax that everybody can understand that gets rid of all the loopholes that rips out the the power of Congress to grant favors to the rich and the powerful, because that's that's one of the biggest ways Congress grants favors is through the tax code, right? So I want to get rid of the tax code. It's it's clearly gross. Nobody likes it. Um, and there's there's options on the table to get rid of that. And I believe that the fair tax would unleash 
quite a bit of GDP, maybe maybe two percent more GDP growth than what we currently have. So I'm looking at trying to like increase GDP, maybe up to five percent would be a really great goal, right? If we had five percent more GDP, and it's really hard in a big economy. Like you see a lot of the advanced economies, they're all at two percent or under two percent because it's just really hard to grow it. But we there's things that we can do to stimulate the economy and grow it, and I, so that's part of it. And I've always said, unfortunately, that one of the ways that the government probably is going to fix the problem of all the uh, debt that we have is they're going to inflate their way out of it, right? Because if you if you devalue the money dramatically, then the debts that you have to pay back are much smaller, right? Like if if and so unfortunately, I think that that is might be a way that they're going to try to play it out is to to inflate and basically what that does is it's a hidden tax on all citizens and it devalues everybody's standard of living uh and and people don't most people don't understand that and they're not clued into that so it's sort of acceptable to them which is very unfortunate right people complain about the high prices but they will then complain that maybe it's corporations that cause the high prices or, you know, and we all, and libertarians know it's the Fed that caused the high prices, right? Printing all that stimulus money, helicopter dropping it onto everybody during the pandemic, and then the supply chain issues that we had from the, the Ukraine war and, you know, other, obviously other shipping issues and things that we had going on during the uh, the pandemic. This is a, it's a lot of moving parts, but I think the answer to your question simply is to try to grow GDP dramatically so that we we have more money to pay off those debts and that we don't have to raise taxes in order to do it. And hopefully we can find some uh, spending. I often tell people uh, that they'll say, well, I, I really like my taxes and I want to tax people more. And I said, well, do you think that the government spends the money that it gets wisely and efficiently? I have never had one person tell me, yes, I think the government spends the money wisely and efficiently, no matter what side of this political spectrum they are. And nobody believes that. Everybody believes there's fat to cut. Everybody believes there's fraud and waste in the system. Everybody knows some government employee that, you know, doesn't work hard and like just basically like just squirrels money away. That's that should be, you know, taxpayers money, essentially. That reminds me of that story in 2018 where the was it the Air Force got caught spending $1,200 on a coffee cup. Like each coffee cup was like $1,200. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's the Pentagon spending for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> got another question, no. Danielle. I'll let you take it. Um, no, I have a military anecdote because we got, I have so many brand new fucking backpacks and flashlights and multi tools because every year they have to spend up to what their budget was. Right. They won't take a cut, reduce budget next year because. Yeah just in case we need something comes up they need that wiggle room so yeah just, well you, they need to keep the budget going because they the, the whole thing is is if you want to increase your fiefdom i call it the fiefdom if you want to increase your fiefdom in the government then the bigger the budget you have the more employees underneath you have the more mm -hmm. responsibility you have the bigger paycheck you're going to get right and yeah. they never want to give up budget because if you give up budget then the government goes oh you didn't need that so next year your new budget is whatever you didn't spend, right? Like, and so mm -hmm. you automatically get a reduced budget and nobody wants that, right? So of yeah. course they just burn it to the ground and buy office furniture, like you said, or, mm -hmm. you know, just, you know, spend our coffee cups, $500 yeah, not, coffee cups, not right? even a little bit surprised. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so then that's actually a good pivot to foreign policy. So uh, you mentioned the war in Ukraine. That's obviously the major conflict that's going on in the world right now. Um, yeah. At least the one that's everyone's talking about. So from a libertarian perspective, what is your stance on foreign policy, military interventions? If you were president today, uh, how would you address the Ukrainian conflict and other conflicts around the globe? I mean, there's a lot of other conflicts that the U.S. Yeah. is involved in that don't get the kind of press. Um, yeah. Just any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, you know, we've we've kind of... I think a lot of foreign policy has to do with energy. It's very much tied to energy and to resources, essentially, right? And and we fight a lot of wars over oil and over, you know, various resources on the planet. And so one of the things that I really, like, am pushing for, uh, it's, it's a kind of a weird way to get the foreign policy, but energy independence in America is directly related, in my opinion, to foreign policy. And so I want to see a lot more... Uh, energy independence, uh, nuclear technology, uh, thorium reactors. Uh, I'm, my biggest dream uh, is that we get fusion and energy becomes ultimately like zero, right? Uh, and this is also goes back to the to the economy situation, right? Everything that we buy and everything that we do in America is touched by energy cost, right? So when oil goes up, everything gets more expensive. When oil goes down, everything gets less expensive, right? So if we were able to get a lot of energy, a lot cheaper, suddenly that's another one of these things that boosts the GDP, like what I was talking about, right? If we can make energy costs come way down, not only that, but if we if we were like the leaders in, in reduced energy costs, that would drive business to come to America, right? If we had a lot of free, cheap energy that businesses could use and they were like, wow, I have a plant, my plant uses a lot of electricity and you guys have it for really cheap compared to these other places. I'm moving my plant there. Oh, and my plant needs a thousand workers, right? And my plant, you know, and so we can start bringing jobs back to America that have like been, you know, disappearing. So I fusion for me is the ultimate dream because I think it solves a lot of uh, not only America's problems, but the whole world's problems, right? Because free energy would just be a total game changer. It allows for like desalinization plants to be built all over the planet. So we don't have water problems that we have. It, it just, there's so many things you can do with free, cheap energy and also just all the innovation that would happen from that. Like we, we can't even imagine all the stuff that would happen if we had unlimited cheap energy. Right. So that's part of, but, but back to the foreign policy stuff, I, I kind of got on a side tangent there. Um, look, I'm, I'm with uh, libertarians on, on these policies of essentially reducing military overseas, reducing military bases, uh, extracting us out of these foreign wars that, you know, do nothing but just piss people off all over the world, right? I don't, I want to get rid of the imperial America. I don't feel like we should be pushing our ideals on other people. That's, it's, it's just like, I don't want other Americans pushing their ideals on me. And I don't want to push my ideals on other Americans. We certainly shouldn't be pushing our ideals across our borders to other people. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. So of course, uh, I like a defense. Um, we have Memorial Day coming up here and I like a good defense for America. I have a, you know, military family and people who have served in uh, Vietnam War and the Korean War in my family and World War II. And so I value our veterans and I wanna, I wanna serve our veterans best by not creating any more veterans right? That's like, that's like the ideal goal for me. And as far as all the things that we're in, you know, I talk a lot about that 
we all armchair quarterback all these situations, but we don't have all the intelligence briefing that a president has. We don't know all the intricate situations that are going on. So we're making our best guess as to what happened, but we don't really know. So unless you're actually president, it's hard to like call these things exactly like what should happen or shouldn't happen. But I do know fundamentally that people dying is not a good thing. And I want the least amount of people dying around the world as possible. And I certainly don't want U.S. bombs being the thing that's killing people, right? I, I, uh, I'm when I sold my company, I obviously made a lot of money. And I, I don't know if it was that year or the next year, but we were shooting Tomahawk cruise missiles into Iraq, and or yeah, somewhere in the Middle East, we were shooting these Tomahawk cruise missiles, and they said they shot ten of them, and they were a million dollars each, right? And one of them was a dud. And I was like, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I should be happy that it was a dead and we blew, we threw a million dollars into the sea for nothing, or like I should be happy that it was a dead and we didn't kill any people with it. Right. So, um, yeah, so there's, and there's all kinds of, I, I think one of the problems too, is, is like, you look at Afghanistan, we spent 20 years and I, this is a Michael white quote, cause I love that guy, but we went, we spent 20 years in Afghanistan, uh, to replace the Taliban with the Taliban, right? And we just burned an unprecedented amount of money, uh, lots of lives lost. Uh, we gained nothing there other than just more pissed off people, right? And one final thought on, on you could go on and on about this, but one final thought on this is that Donald Trump started all these trade wars with China, right? He's like, well, we're going to bl block this and ban that. And they have a big trade war, not a trade war, but they have a big... Uh, um, blockade against Russia right now, right? And so the thing is, I believe that trade wars cause real wars, right? That when you are like tit for tatting against people, that just causes animosity and strife. And the more trade we do with the people, the less likely we're going to go to war with them. That's my opinion. So I'd like to see us doing more trade with more countries, more free and open trade with less restrictions so that everybody lifestyle increases with the um, standard of living for Americans. Copy that. Makes sense. Um, I got two more questions, Danielle, in seven minutes. You want to jump in? Um, I just want to just make sure that we touch on Memorial Day specifically is for those who have died, correct? Okay. Because yeah. we said the way to honor veterans, and I want to make sure that if we're talking about Memorial Day, we want to honor yeah. those who have died. And yeah. We don't yes. want to make more of them either. Yes, yes, and that's a good distinction. And I honestly, I, 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 um, my grandfather uh, served in the Korean War and then the Vietnam War, and I remember mixing that up, and he uh, chastised me about it quite a bit. So I, I have a, I, I do mix those up, and so yes, it's for the people who have have died for sure. But we don't want to create any more veterans that you know than we have to either, right? No. Noted. Okay, so. Um... Two more questions for me in the last five minutes. Just touching on the issue of climate change. I actually think you talked about this in your um, town hall with Larry Sharp, but I'll ask you to you in a different way. So it's a two-part question. First question is, do you think human activity is contributing to climate change? And then the second part is, you know, if you do think it's a, a problem or an issue, um, how do you think, what's the libertarian solution for it? Yeah. Um, or if there is, if you think it is a challenge that needs to be solved. Yeah. No, I think I think it's pretty clear that there is climate change happening. Um, and I think when, when I think of this climate change, what I think of is 
I was a kid in the 70s and in the 70s we they had the uh, the gas crisis right and gas was shooting up I remember my mom complaining that gas was really high and it was like a, it had reached a dollar and uh, and I remember reading these stories when I was a kid and being kind of terrified because they said that by the year 2000 the planet was going to run out of oil and there wasn't going to be any oil left. And these are the top scientists of the day. And they were writing papers and it was all over the news that Walter Cronkite was talking about how we were never going to have oil again. And we got to the year 2000 and lo and behold, we had more oil in 2000 than we did in the 1970s. And why is that? It's because we came up with, I mean, it's not a great solution, but we came up with fracking. And fracking unlocked tons of oil that didn't exist before and other ways of extracting oil that didn't exist before. So while I do think that there is climate change, I don't think that we're going to be underwater in five years, right? I don't I don't think that's the case. I think it's going to take longer than that. And uh, what I'd like to see is, I believe that there will be a technological solution to, to climate change. And Obviously, if we were to get cheap, unlimited uh, fuel out of nuclear fusion, we would basically get rid of most fossil fuels, and that would take care of a lot of it. I, a, a guy had posted on Facebook the other day, uh, he, he said, what is the number one change for CO2 in the atmosphere? And, and I was like, oh, this is a trap. I'm going to get trapped. So I posted the meme of the Star Wars character that says it's a trap. And then I said, it's fossil fuels. And he said, you're correct. Why do you think it's a trap? And I'm like, I don't know. It just seemed like a trap. I think, felt like I was running into something. But he's like, you know, you 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 win that one. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, I tend to agree with you that um, innovation and free market solutions are are going to be a, the solution there. So, um, and I think libertarians are the best on that record, or at least they have yeah. the best record on 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 that issue. We, we don't talk about it enough either. So I appreciate you talking about it. Yeah, I have one last question uh, before we run out of time. Um, this is a bigger picture question. This maybe goes back to the elevator pitch, so you might be able to close this out in a very concise way. But it's more it's more of the question of this is a you know we're in a really unique moment in time in history and. Uh, you know, you're stepping up and saying, I'm the right person to lead the country. And so just big picture, what, why do you believe that you're the right person that the country needs right now? Yeah. Well, I think that we have a lot of, obviously we have a lot of division in America today, right? The people are pissed off. Uh, Democrats are pissed off. Republicans are pissed off. And that division, in my opinion, comes from government coercion that the Republicans are trying to force their ideals onto the Democrats. The Democrats are trying to force their ideals onto the Republicans. And it just is a, a tit for tat war. And, and, and the way that they're trying to force those ideals is through the use of the government, is through the use of legislation, is the, and, and ultimately through the use of force. Because when you have legislation, you, it's, it's at the end of a gun. At the, in the, at the end of the day, right? If you don't participate or you don't behave the way that they want you to behave, then you know you get put in jail or you get you know something bad happens to you. So, I believe that like this division, we can we can end this division, and we can end this division by removing government coercion as much as possible from our lives. That Democrats and Republicans have to start looking at each other and saying, you know what? You live your life different than me. You have different beliefs than I do, but I'm not going to try to impose my will upon you. I'm going to let you live the way that you see fit. And as long as you're not hurting me or hurting my family, then I'm fine with however you want to behave. Right. And whether that be, uh, you know, 
ultra right Christian uh, activity or ultra left, you know, socialist activity. It, you know, as long as you're not hurting me, live your life, do your thing, you know, and, and, and uh, associate with other like-minded people and, and do what you want to do. Right. But it's, it's when we start yelling at each other and telling each other, look, you have to behave this way. And if you don't behave this way, I'm going to make the government force you to behave this way. And that division is what's the cancer in America right now. So what I want to do is remove as much government coercion as possible in people's lives in order to remove that division so that we can get back to a healthier, happier America. The, I, there was a chart I looked at. I, I just wanted to see, are Americans more happy today than they were 20 years ago or 40 years ago? Give me a bar chart of Americans' happiness. Brrr, straight into the toilet, right? People are pissed off. Nobody's happier. It's getting more and more toxic. And if we don't fix it, it's going to turn into chaos. It's going to turn into something really bad, right? And I don't want to see that because the last time that we all got that pissed off at each other, we had a civil war, right? And a lot of people died and a lot of people were miserable. And I don't think we need to go there. I hope we don't have to go there. I, I saw just a funny anecdote. I saw a hoodie yesterday that said, uh, elder emo, it was never a phase. And that just <laughs> reminded me of that. Well, no, that that's all very insightful. And I, I appreciate your time, Lars, and answering our questions. I, um, I wish you luck, even in the LP primary. It's, it can be toxic sometimes. I, I don't know. Are you doing a bunch of traveling? I, I will be going to Maine in a couple weeks uh, to their convention, and then I'll be traveling around the Northeast a bit. And then I will also be heading to the Las Vegas convention, the, the Nevada convention. And just a note on that, today I was reading in Reason that Nevada is now voting on ranked choice voting and eliminating the primaries altogether in nice. Nevada, which is like, yes, let's yeah, go. Awesome. Let's get that in every yeah. state, right? That's get rid awesome. of the primaries. Why Why are pe taxpayers paying for Democrats and Republicans primaries? I have no idea. I, I didn't realize that until it was pointed out to me. And then I was like, that is, I don't want to pay for that. I'm not even one of those things. Why am I paying for that? Why am I forced <laughs> to pay for that, right? That, no, absolutely, absolutely. So if somebody wants to uh, donate or support you, I guess website's on the screen. Is there anywhere yep. else they need to look? Yeah, Lars24.com. I'm on Facebook, Lars for President, easy to find. And on Twitter, which I've been spending more and more time on, Libertarian Lars. And uh, yeah, give me a follow. I'm like, oh, another thing is I'm trying to get a thousand donors before the convention, right? And I don't care if you give me one dollar. I need a thousand people to say, I support Lars Mapstead for President. And the best way you can show that is send me one dollar on my website, Lars24.com. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. And if you want to find the CLC, you, uh, we've got Discord, Facebook, Twitter at lpclc.org. Uh, and all the links are there. Do you want people following you on a Twitter, Joshua? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, sure. You can follow me on Twitter at Josh Eckel if you want to. If you want, if you want to get into the weeds there, that'll be fun. <laughs> Thanks for the plug, Danielle. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for your time, thank gentlemen. You. Uh, I guess have a good rest of your evening. We'll see you, you guys too. later. Thanks, guys. Bye.